Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Fairfield, Ohio. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Twenty-one-year-old Caitlin Markham was way ahead of most people her age. She was always a planner and she would sit down and set a goal for herself and then map out everything that needed to be done to get her there, and step-by-step, she always would with no excuses. By August of 2011, she was just a few weeks away from graduating with her bachelor's degree in graphic design, she was working not one but two jobs, and she was just a few months away from moving clear across the country to Colorado to start a new chapter of her life with her fiancé John, whom she had been with for six years. Every single one of the goals she had set for herself in the last four to six years of her life was about to come to fruition, and no one ever thought she'd go missing before it happened. On Friday, August 12th, 2011, Caitlin and her fiancé John went to a church festival nearby. It was an all-out kind of deal as far as churches go. They had foods, rides, music, raffles, etc. But according to Crime Watch Daily, it was that raffle that ruffled a few feathers. Caitlin was responsible AF, and when John reportedly bought $100 worth of raffle tickets, she got a little upset. It's not like either of them were rolling in money since Caitlin was working at David's Bridal and a university bookstore, and I believe John was working at a pizza place. Basically, $100 is a lot of money, and they had a wedding and a move coming up, and Caitlin was not thrilled about it. Her friend told Crime Watch Daily that she got so fed up with the situation and didn't want to argue in front of their friends, so she just wound up going home. After cooling off, Caitlin went to work the next morning at David's Bridal and when the day was over, headed back to her condo. From what I can gather, she used to live with her dad, but he'd recently moved out, so she was 100% doing the adult thing, all on her own, and doing it well. John wound up coming over that evening, and so did a friend of theirs named Brad. But it doesn't look like Brad stayed very long, maybe 15 minutes or so, before realizing that for whatever reason, Caitlin and John needed some time alone as a couple. There are some resources out there that detail what exactly they did that night, but I haven't seen the physical report myself, so I'm gonna leave that out. Regardless of what they did, he wound up staying until around 11 or 11.30 that night and left after he says she got tired and wanted to go to bed because like the working woman she was, she needed to get up early for work the next morning. John said his goodnights and left Caitlin's condo for the night and headed to a friend's house. Crime Weekly states that it was a party. While he was there, he got a few texts from Caitlin, so she didn't go to bed right away. The last one was a picture text that came in at 12.52 a.m. Sending a picture text isn't weird by any means, but hold on to that for a second because it's gonna come back up. So John stayed at that party for a hot minute, and he didn't get home until the wee hours of the morning. I'm talking like 4 a.m.-ish, and when he did, Crime Watch Daily reports that he sent Caitlin a good morning text so that she'd see it when she woke up around 10 a.m. to head to work. After John slept like Rip Van Winkle, he woke up just in time to head to work. He realized that he hadn't gotten a response to his good morning text and started to get a little worried. So between 7 and 7.30 p.m., he drove over to Caitlin's condo to check on her. When he got there, he saw her car, and I guess that threw him into an immediate panic because he used his key to get inside the apartment, 
But when he did, Caitlin wasn't there. Her dog was there, locked in her bedroom, along with her purse and keys, but there was no sign of Caitlin. John was in full panic mode at this point, which a lot of people felt was overboard because Caitlin's father told Crime Watch Daily that John called him screaming and saying that Caitlin was missing, which she definitely was. She hadn't shown up for work that day and no one had seen or heard from her. He called 911, and that call is one that a lot of people have read deep into over the past almost 11 years, so we're going to walk through that from all angles. The call's been given in bits and pieces from Nancy Grace, Fox 19, and Crime Watch Daily, so I'm going to do my best to put it in some kind of order. John told the operator that he knew you're not supposed to report someone missing before 24 hours, but that his fiance was missing and he couldn't find her anywhere. For the record, while there's a misconception that that's the truth, there is no planet on Barbara Walters' green earth where that's true. John added, she stays in a house by herself, so I'm just, I'm really nervous. Her car is still there. She would never just take off and go somewhere. She would be at work right now with her car, which is why I'm like, really freaking out. He said that he'd last seen her around midnight at her house and that she was going to bed, adding, she wasn't going out to do anything. She would have been in her bed. I mean, I've been with her for six years. She's not deceiving. His really freaking out tone didn't seem freaked out enough to a lot of people, which raised some suspicions, but to play devil's advocate, everyone handles this kind of situation differently. As far as his comment about Caitlyn not being deceiving, sure, that came off a little strange. When thinking about where Caitlyn might be or what might have happened to her, John told 911, a sacred heart festival is going on right up the street and there are a lot of questionable people there. Again, people felt like this was a little presumptive. John had already made it clear that he didn't think Caitlin had run off and that she was for sure missing, and now he seemed to be offering what felt like a suggestion as to where or who to look into. When Nancy Grace asked him about what he meant by that, he told her, I don't think it draws shady, sketchy people, but there were so many people there, you don't know everybody's intentions there. Moving along with the 911 call, the operator asked if he and Caitlin had gotten into an argument or anything, and John said no. People immediately felt like that was less than truthful, considering her friend's statement to Crime Watch Daily that they'd gotten into an argument the night before. But again, to play devil's advocate, they had hung out the night after. And while her text to him after he left her condo seemed strange, we'll get into that, Maybe he didn't mention it because in his eyes, it wasn't a big deal and they'd gotten over it. After John got off the phone with 911, Caitlin's dad and the police showed up and started processing her apartment. According to Crime Watch Daily, there were no signs of forced entry, no sign of a struggle, nothing had been taken, and it didn't look like her dog had just recently been locked in her room. He'd been there so long that he'd gone to the bathroom on the floor. The bedroom seems to be where Caitlin's last movements had been. A lot of early reports said that her purse and keys were found in her bathroom, but her dad told Crime Watch Daily that they were found in the middle of her bed. The only question was whether she'd put them there the night before or earlier that morning, because if they'd been there all night, then it's likely that Caitlin never went to bed. 
The last piece of evidence that might have been able to point them in Caitlin's direction was her phone, but that wasn't in her apartment. When they tried to ping it, they realized that it had been turned off, and when they pulled her phone records all together, they found that it had been turned off at 12.45 a.m., even though her last text didn't get to John until 12.52 a.m. And yes, everyone just had a riddle me that moment, and I'd love to be able to solve this riddle for you and everyone else out there, but even experts can't seem to figure out how that happened. When I say that Caitlin's community started searching for her immediately, I have never meant immediately more than I do at this moment. Hundreds of people showed up and started searching around her condo, and it's a pretty simple area. Her place was at the entrance of a subdivision surrounded by other subdivisions with a few gas stations and churches sprinkled throughout. It was absolutely not the place you'd expect anything bad to happen, and Caitlin checked every box of the kind of person who had everything to stay around for and no reason to run off. The only conclusion her friends and family could reasonably land on was that something had happened to her. The police, on the other hand, had to work with what they had. They couldn't say they thought foul play was involved until they had the evidence to back it up. By Wednesday, August 16th, the investigation into Caitlin's disappearance was in full swing. Helicopters were searching from above, and according to WCPO, investigators were changing the locks on her apartment so no one could get in while they continued to process it. One thing they wanted to do was look through all of her clothes to see if what she was wearing the night before was missing, and they also wanted to look around to see if they might be able to find a diary or a check stub for a bank account they might not already know about. With all of that going on and the community being so invested in finding her, the media was obviously all over Caitlin's case. They all wanted sound bites from those closest to it, and of course, that included John. He told WCPO, I keep believing if she is somewhere in the worst case scenario that she fights her way out of it because she's strong. I know she's strong, so she's got to manage to make her way out. He told Fox 19, we were planning on going to Colorado in October and then we pushed the date back to November. We could have pushed the date back a year and it would not have mattered. I didn't want to make her do anything she didn't want to do and she did not feel like she was being forced into anything. When asked what he meant by forced, he told them, just going to Colorado, the marriage, the whole thing. It was entirely up to her. That rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and they started looking into every move that John made or didn't make, including whether or not he posted on Facebook, whether or not he updated his profile picture, and whether or not he was referring to Caitlin in the past or present tense. To that, he told WLWT that he was doing whatever he could to help in the investigation, but that he felt like people were blaming him for what happened to Caitlin, adding, people are going to say what they're going to say. You can't stop them. For what it's worth, it does look like John was communicating with police throughout all of that, and he did participate in the searches, handing out flyers for other people to pass out. His stance was that if people were talking about him, at the very least, they were still talking about Caitlin. By August 25th, there was still no sign of Caitlin and her disappearance started getting national attention, which included Nancy Grace. John had no qualms about joining in her show via phone call, and as Nancy Grace does, she dove right in asking him about the last text Caitlin sent to him, that photo. As it turns out, it wasn't just a picture, it was a picture of a picture. One that her boss, who was apparently into photography, had taken for her and Caitlin wanted to show it to him. 
Nancy asked why she hadn't shown it to him while he was at her apartment, and it doesn't seem like he thought it was that big of a deal, just that it was upstairs and that she sends him pictures all the time. That reaction had people going in all different directions. They either felt like he was making excuses, or he was just a guy with a missing fiancé who hadn't even questioned why she hadn't shown him the picture earlier. After going over that text, Nancy asked him about the text Caitlin had sent him before that, and this is when people got really suspicious really fast. But again, we have to look at it from both sides. John told Nancy Grace that the texts Caitlin had sent him before the picture text were about some documents she'd given him and whether or not he had burned them yet. Obviously, additional eyebrows were raised, but he said that they were just bills and stuff like canceled checks and what have you. He said that there was a bunch of them and that she didn't want to take them with her on their move to Colorado, and she didn't want to tear them up and have someone find them in the trash. As someone who lives where people burn a lot of stuff, I can absolutely see someone doing this, but I think the fact that the texts and that task were given to him by someone who was now missing gave it a more yikes kind of vibe, especially since we know the police were looking in her condo for evidence of any other bank accounts. But for what it's worth, I haven't found any mention of evidence to refute that John wasn't just burning some stuff that Caitlin had asked him to. Having gone through the text, Nancy asked John if he'd taken a polygraph test, and he said he had and that he'd passed. That answer was one that got torn apart and shit on for years. It turns out that he hadn't technically taken a polygraph test, but he had taken a voice analysis test, which he told Fox 19 was a form of lie detector test. And he's not wrong. It's supposed to detect stress and hopefully deception by analyzing someone's voice patterns. According to the National Institute of Justice, it's just about as useful as a polygraph, which we all know isn't always reliable. The article I read from the National Institute of Justice was titled Voice Stress Analysis, Only 15% of Lies About Drug Use Detected in Field Tests. Polygraph tests aren't notorious for being accurate and often tend to test whether or not someone is willing to take one in the first place. Though John told Nancy Grace he'd passed, Crime Watch Daily reports that his results were reportedly inconclusive. That being said, he did wind up taking two additional polygraph tests. After John's interview with Nancy Grace, the side eyes pointing in his direction were staring harder than they ever have, and it seemed like this might have been when he started getting frustrated with the media. He told Fox 19 that Nancy Grace hadn't given him the opportunity to explain what kind of lie detector test he'd taken, and that he wouldn't be talking to her anymore, only to her producers, because he felt like her interviews stopped being about Caitlyn and were focused on him. To be fair here, I read through the transcript of the interview and everyone on that show seemed to give John an infinite amount of kudos for being willing to talk, being so open about everything, his attitude towards keeping Caitlyn's name in the media, even if it meant talking poorly about him, and even fielding a question someone called in wondering why he'd sometimes referred to Caitlyn in the past tense. Unless there's an interview I didn't see, everyone on Nancy Grace's show seemed to be in favor of him. There was plenty of whispering going on when it came to the rumor mill, but when it came to action, no one paused. Regardless of what was being said in the media, the searches for Caitlyn were constant. 
It was a little tough trying to figure out where to search, considering it was neighborhoods as far as the eye could see, but there were still some patches of woods, creeks, and parks to comb through, which were places that psychics had come forward and suggested that they search. They also searched an area off Lick Road, which a local told Local 12 was a place that people used to go to look for ghosts. All that to say is that it didn't seem like the kind of place where people would go on their own and might be the perfect place for someone to dispose of something. And I'll be damned if they didn't find something. WCPO reports that within a 10-foot radius, they found a black Converse shoe, a hoop earring, a cell phone, and a cell phone battery. Shout out to everyone who remembers when cell phones had batteries. When all of that was found, it was like someone grabbed a megaphone, sent out a press release, and waved a flag with the information on it because it was all over the place. I mean, everyone was talking about it, and the photos of the items were in all sorts of articles, but none of it belonged to Caitlin. They were advertised as promising clues, but John told Local 12 that the cell phone found wasn't hers, frankly it looked like it had been there for a while, and that Caitlin didn't wear hoop earrings. As far as the rest, posts on her Facebook page indicated that her family had said that none of the other items found belonged to her either. Unfortunately, the promising clues wound up being false hope, so it was back to the drawing board. More flyers were handed out, buttons and necklaces with Caitlin's photo on them were made, Lamar Advertising put up digital billboards with her information on them between Ohio and Kentucky, and people started donating to a reward fund that quickly made it up to $5,000. On August 31st, the king of all searchers, Tim Miller, and his band of heroes, Texas EquiSearch, joined in the search for Caitlin. The first day there was for planning, and WCPO reports that they scouted out 40 different locations, focusing on wooded areas where someone could dump something, and set some ground rules. You had to be 18 to search and provide a photo ID to sign in before it started. You'd be part of a search team that would have a team leader. In your assigned search location, you'd stand in a line with everyone in your team an inch forward, 25 to 30 feet, before turning around and inching back, searching the same area twice. He compared it to searching for a contact lens. If anything was found, you were supposed to yell halt and have your team leader come over. When Texas EquiSearch gets involved, you know that you've got the best of the best working on a case, but for days, despite every resource you can imagine, they didn't find anything. They actually had to temporarily suspend the searches because of 99 degree heat, but of course, they resumed until they had searched everywhere they could think of without finding anything. When they had done all they could do, the North Carolina Star Search and Rescue Team came out with a cadaver dog, but they weren't able to find anything either. The cadaver dog used in Caitlin Markham's search was named Markham. By the second week of September, the reward for information increased by $25,000, 
thanks to a restaurant owner named Jeff Ruby. He'd given food to the searchers during the process, and according to WCPO, he likes to use his extra money to offer rewards in missing persons cases. He'd done it several times in the past. He's the kind of human the world needs, and Texas EquiSearch validated that and appointed him to the board of directors to their mounted search and rescue team. Fox 19 reports that he had met Tim Miller back when he was searching for Kaylee Anthony three years prior. I'd love to tell you that there was a break in Caitlin's case even close to when the reward grew, but the next media event didn't happen until June of 2012 when a guy who'd once worked at a convenience store some 400 feet away from Caitlin's condo was arrested for a sexual assault that had reportedly taken place four months before Caitlin went missing. Because of the proximity of his once workplace and where she lived, and the fact that the two of them had interacted before, people naturally put the two together, but the man's cousin told Fox 19 that he doesn't see how he would go out of his way to kill somebody he barely knew. Not exactly the most convincing statement, but Caitlin's own father told 12 News Now that he remembers the man as a polite clerk, okay, and that he doesn't think there's any connection. In the end, Caitlin's dad probably knew more about her case than anyone else, and he didn't want people focusing on this clerk guy and overlooking things that might actually help her case. And he was right. In the end, there wasn't anything that pointed to the clerk being involved in Caitlin's disappearance at all. Once again, when it felt like Caitlin's case might be moving in some kind of direction, they were back to where it all started with no sign of her. There were more searches, fundraisers to offset the cost of the searches, vigils, and even an event called Hope for Caitlin Markham, Watch Hope Grow, where they gave everyone seeds so the community would be reminded of her when they grew. The last thing anyone wanted was for people to forget that Caitlin was missing because for her friends and family, her absence was an everyday reminder. On April 7th, 2013, 20 months after Caitlin disappeared, a couple who was going through some hard times headed out to an illegal dumping site in the woods in this tiny little town, Cedar Grove, Indiana, just across the Indiana state line by Big Bear Creek. When I say tiny little town, I'm talking population 151. The couple was trying to find some cans or scrap metal they could trade in for money because according to Cincinnati.com, they had three kids and another on the way, and with one of them having lost their job a few months back, they were doing everything they could to get by. They never thought that their search for scrap metal would lead to the discovery of a body. When they got to the dump site, the outlet reports that they opened a grocery bag about 30 yards from the creek, probably hoping to find something they could collect, but instead found a human skull with brown hair wrapped around it. They also found a jawbone, a hip bone, rib bones, and shoulder bones. There was no question that this was human and called 911. Investigators rushed to the scene, and even though the remains needed to be tested, one of the detectives told Crime Watch Daily that he could pretty much identify that this was Caitlin by looking at her teeth. And dental records did wind up confirming that it was her. She was found more than 20 miles west of where she lived and in a place where you'd have to know about the area to be there. According to Crime Watch Daily, it didn't help the public's suspicion on John that his family home was reportedly a couple of miles down the road. 
Having found Caitlin's remains, that restaurant owner wound up giving the couple who found her $5,000 of the $20,000 reward, even though it hadn't led to the arrest or conviction of anyone. According to Cincinnati.com, when he heard that they had kids and were out looking for cans to pay the bills, he decided to give them some of the reward money and said that if finding her body did lead to an arrest and conviction, he'd also give them the remaining $20,000. Trying to determine Caitlin's cause of death was top priority at that point. Knowing that her skull was found in a bag, there were theories that her remains had been taken there away from where they originally were, but the people who found her said that it didn't look like anyone had tried to hide her body. With only her skull in the bag, people started theorizing that maybe she had been suffocated. If that was the case, they were going to have a hard time proving that in an autopsy. When all you have is skeletal remains, a cause of death can be hard to determine unless the cause had some kind of impact on the bones. There was a new concern that they'd never know how she died and that no one would ever be held accountable. Her dad told WCPO, this wasn't an accident. She didn't just walk 25 miles away and lay in that creek bed and never wake up. She was put there somehow by somebody. Thirteen days after Caitlin was found, her family held a celebration of life for her, though her remains were still in Indiana being tested. Journal News reports that John showed up an hour after it started, and while some people consoled him as soon as he got there, there were also people who were surprised he even showed up. The heat on him from the community was still extremely heavy, even though the police had never named him a suspect or person of interest. In the same breath, they'd never ruled anyone out either. In the months after Caitlin's celebration of life, her remains were tested by forensic pathologists in both Indiana and Ohio. They were never able to confirm a cause of death, but they did rule her death a homicide. We obviously don't know everything they do, but whatever they know was enough for them to deem her death a homicide, which revamped her entire investigation. They started back at square one and re-interviewed everyone who knew Caitlin and any potential witnesses, including her own father who was more than happy to sit down for another two-hour interview because if anything it meant that they were working on his daughter's case. He told WCPO that he had some theories but he didn't have any hard facts or proof. When they asked him about John, Caitlin's dad told the outlet that he no longer has a relationship with him, that he doesn't see him much anymore and believes John has moved on. Once again, that comment came with a lot of scrutiny, like wondering why they didn't have a relationship, whether something happened or it was just too hard to maintain one with everything that had happened. There was also a lot of questioning about whether or not it was appropriate if John had moved on and what exactly that meant. More than a year after Caitlin's remains were found, Fox News reported that Caitlin's dad and 12 members of Texas Equisearch were back at the scene where Caitlin's body had been found and were searching the area again. The outlet posted photos, and you can see them using shovels and digging into the ground right beside a giant wooden cross that had been put up. They were looking for more of Caitlin's remains, and her dad had to watch them while they did it. To make it even more emotional, they did find some. A detective with the state police told the Dayton Daily News that they had to send the remains off for testing, but he was 90% sure they were hers. 
Another year went by, and at that point, Caitlin's dad was beyond frustrated with the lack of movement in Caitlin's case. He hired a retired cold case detective to look into every aspect of her case, but he wasn't the only one. In time, a PI was also hired, and they even pleaded with the Butler County Sheriff's Office to please take on her case. Between all of that, a lot was accomplished, depending on your definition of a lot. When the PI came into this, he hit the ground running and started interviewing people again and worked with a polygraph company out of Ohio to start giving them to anyone who'd agree to take one. According to Caitlin's Facebook page, he found out that there were two people who had failed theirs. They actually said that they'd failed in epic proportions. An article from WLWT describes the two people as subject one and another friend. Reading between the lines, one could gather that both were friends of Caitlin's. The PI told the station that something happened that night among friends, causing Caitlin's death. He said that he doesn't believe it was intentional, but that they panicked and dumped her body. He said he handed everything he found over to the police, but that they didn't do anything with it. Fairfield police told the station that they were trying to repair a relationship lost after the PI talked to them. Following that is when Butler County came in. Caitlin's dad was frustrated with Fairfield and pleaded for them to take on the case, and they did. In November of 2016, they made the biggest announcement that has ever been made in her case. According to Journal News, they said that they had a strong person of interest but didn't have enough evidence to make an arrest, which is fair because you only get one shot at convicting whoever did this. If they press charges but have a weak case, any defense attorney is going to crap all over it and then there's no justice. They said they needed the public's help, but it doesn't look like what kind of help they needed was ever explained. One could assume that they just needed someone to talk, or they needed someone to think back about what they might have heard or seen around the time she disappeared and call in something they might have thought was important at the time, but the comments online had a theme of frustration. People wanted to help, but they were kind of left directionless as to how to do it. Three more years went by until Crime Watch Daily did a big feature on Caitlin's case, and it definitely seemed heavily focused on John. He said he'd sent to Caitlin at 4 a.m. on the day she disappeared, didn't show up on his call log. They actually called him in to do an interview about it, and they hid a camera in the room and filmed it. He showed up with his mom, and they asked him about the text that wasn't on the phone record, and they seemed like they'd answered that question before, and neither seemed to get very upset about it. In all fairness, John seemed really willing to cooperate, and his mom made a good point. She said that the 911 call he made was also not on the call history, and that's a recorded phone call that they know happened, essentially calling into question the accuracy of the logs at all. The PI also talked to Crime Watch Daily about Brad, the friend who'd allegedly come over the night before. He said that Brad sold the vehicle he'd driven that night not long after Caitlin's body was found, so he said he tracked it down and used luminol, which he said did react, but it had been years, and again, to be fair, there are things other than blood that can make luminol light up. According to the outlet, Fairfield doesn't believe Brad was involved. To this day, Caitlin Markham's case has never been solved. Her case remains active and there are countless people dedicated to working as long and hard as it takes to solve it. According to Fox 19, her father regularly visits a tree planted in her honor at Creekside Park and says she's not forgotten and she won't be forgotten. 
If you have any information about the murder of Caitlin Markham, please contact the Butler County Sheriff's Office at 513-785-1000. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Caitlin's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To listen ad-free and get access to bonus episodes, subscribe on Apple or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime. I'll be bringing you a missing persons episode on Thursday and a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 